0: Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hi, friends. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. And Merry Christmas to all of you. Merry
1: Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Last episode before Christmas. Last
0: episode before Christmas. Those of you who have been following along, we are so grateful for your attention, and we hope you're enjoying this novel as much as we are. You guys, how is the reading going for you? How are you feeling? I mean, we're, we've made some significant progress. Yeah, no kidding. We really have. Uh, we're, we're 570 pages in my edition into this novel at this point. So pat yourselves on the back. That's pretty impressive.
2: It is kind of funny, though, that it still feels like we're in introductory matter, almost. Like, one of our main characters is still a little kiddo, and Jean Valjean's only just now figuring out who he is. It feels very much like exposition at page 550. (laughs) Dickens and Hugo would have had a lot to talk about. (laughs) Dickens is like, the best part is the beginning. Let's always be in the beginning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I was a kid, I was assigned David Copperfield far too young, far, far, far too young. I was, I was in, I was entering junior high when David Copperfield (laughs) was handed to me by my parents and I hated it. Of course. I absolutely hated it. There was between seven and 800 pages of introductory matter. And then the entire scope of the plot began and ended in the last 150 pages. And I thought, I have just wasted a significant percentage of my young life. Right. <laughs> I hate this book. I feel like at this point, the
1: majority of the Center for Lit Universe knows that story. And yeah. so what's going to have to happen is-
2: We're going to have to do David Copperfield.
0: Yeah. I know. I know it's coming. I know it's coming.
2: (laughs) I do. I know I made the association between Hugo and Dickens, but I will give Hugo this. There is plenty of action. It just still feels like progress in terms of the maturing and overarching like soul plot of the main characters is still nascent. You know, but there is plenty of, you know, there's dueling and there's hiding from the police and there's all kind of stuff.
0: So. <laughs> well, I, w- I also wonder, I wonder how much of our perception of this is necessarily affected by the Broadway musical. Oh, because that's an it's an adaptation and it's relatively faithful, although I guess we've yet to find out how faithful it is because we haven't gotten to that stage of the plot yet. But they've had to cut a lot in order to fit it into a Broadway musical length.
2: Sure. So they've changed the pacing forever
0: of the story. Right. The story that we know and love hasn't happened yet. Maybe that's why it feels to us like we're still in introductory matter.
1: Isn't that just a feature of these like long winding books that we read on this podcast? The main overarching plot's always gonna be a little loose and there's gonna be a lot more like episodic narratives throughout. And
2: long digressions that are thematic in nature. And if you've signed up for how to eat an elephant, that's what you signed up for is
1: long, windy thematic interpretations, <laughs> you just you're never welcome. know what you're going to get on a on a reading week,
0: you know, it's really true
1: to that point. Yeah,
2: it does seem like it's better than than our last interpretation, which was all about. Yes. nunneries. You know?
0: Oh, my goodness. The vitriol. Okay. So that's a great lead in question. Actually, this week we transition to plot and we get way more actual action than we did in the previous section. But it's still in the context of the cloister. And he still takes time off to pot shot at it once or twice. And the question I have for you guys is do you think his tone is any more moderate than it was in the previous section?
1: I thought so. I thought, I was like, oh, here's here he is again. Here's Hugo that we've come to know and love.
0: Like the vitriol was just a flight of passion. And it, then now yeah. he's
1: back. Yeah. And like he's very respectful. And he, like, once again, he's using. The things of the convent to have serious thematic conversations, which is just that is has to be a sign of respect. Right. Mm -hmm. He's using the imagery of life there to talk about ideas that he really cares about.
0: Yeah. Megan, do you think that, too? Or did it still strike you that he was like sniggering behind his hand at the at the convent ladies?
2: I don't know that he's sniggering behind his hand, but I definitely think that he is leaning on his big, long digression still. And Fauch <laughs> is it Fauch Levant? Is that how you say his name? Fauch Levant's I think so I'm gonna interaction. Call him Fauchy. Sure, Fauchie. He and his interaction <laughs> with the prioress, he's definitely comes out as the intelligent one in that scenario. Yeah. Which I think mm. is a furtherance of the tone that Hugo had before towards the the strictness of this convent, that he is able to understand what they want, these nuns, and play to what will make them comfortable. Meanwhile, understanding and and buying in are different and he's comfortable there, eager to serve them and and using the things that he can in this convent to to his own ends, which I think is a little bit cynical if you look at it, depending on how you look at it. I don't know. I didn't believe that his tone was entirely,
0: entirely warm now. Yeah, I think you might be right. And it it seems like he is drawing out this distinction between. Well, the the broadest version of it is between life and death but also a distinction between spiritual concerns and earthly ones. Mm -hmm. And it it seems to me that he's trying to sketch a picture of holiness, right? Of human sanctity, not perfect holiness as in God, but of human holiness. Mm -hmm. And already it seems as though he's leaning towards human holiness as defined by a marriage of spiritual concerns and earthly ones. And the cloister represents spiritual concerns to the exclusion of Earthly ones, yeah, and in that way, it's ineffective, limited. misses the mark, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Very, yeah, limited, mm-hmm. but beautiful and respectable, but limited though, right? That right? they
2: need Fauchelevent as much as he respects them. They're kind of innocent in a childish way, like they need him to take care of them in some ways. Limited, I think, is the best word.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a line where it says that Fauchelevent was capable of clothing these ghosts or these corpses in in life, like mm-hmm. in flesh again. And he himself seems to represent a kind of earthy holiness or wisdom.
0: Yeah. Uneducated, but cunning,
1: cunning and kind, but only because like, but he's only kind because it says he's been breathing the air of the convent for so long that it has destroyed his personality.
0: So there's, that's a, that little description is so interesting. I was going to point that out. Isn't that a backhanded compliment? (laughs) Right. Like on the one hand, he's been in the cloister long enough that it has bred peace and humility and a lot of the virtues that we associate with holiness. On the other hand, in order to do that, it has destroyed his personality. And I'm using Hugo's words.
2: But hand in hand with that description, it's described as he was really selfish all of his life. And now at the end of his life, he found it sweet to be grateful, sweet, like drinking wine on his deathbed. Mm -hmm. Like he's never tasted something as fulfilling as what he's doing now. So it's both. And it's kind of a cynical look. And also it's acknowledging the efficacy of like gratitude. The good that does for your soul is firmly acknowledged in this passage. So I don't think he's looking down his nose at virtue or a life, a life that's about the pursuit of virtue. I don't know. I don't know what to take
1: from this scene. I was thinking about the air imagery, that it's the air that he breathes. And we're also told that Jean Valjean was blown in by a wind into the convent. And so I wonder if if he's using the spirituality of the convent on the one hand he is having the conversation you can't just have that we the, like like he ties wealth like material well-being to like spiritual well-being he's done that for cosette and for jean valjean and so you also in your virtue have to tie the spiritual to the material but there, I wonder if it also works the other way that maybe Fauchelevent and Jean Valjean were too material, and there's something about it, it like wind, right, like a, a holy spirit. There's some, there's an inspiration taking place here by being put in contact with such a spiritual force or atmosphere or something like that.
0: Yeah, I think you might be right. Well, let's let's jump into the plot of it and. And run through how the action of the the thing takes place before we dive back into the thematic conversation, because there's more to say about this, I think. But but a, a set of, as Megan put it before we got on the air, particularly on the nose <laughs> images, leads us to that conversation. So the problem here in this section is that while Jean Valjean and Cosette have been delivered by by, quote unquote, falling from heaven into this convent, they're now in a spot of trouble because men aren't allowed in the convent. The only man that's allowed is Fauch I'm sorry, Fauchy. And
2: <laughs> they also call <laughs> him, so Fulval, now, by the way, if you'd like a an actual nickname.
0: There are like three different versions. I mean, eventually his reputation gets out, and Archbishop or whomever it is learns oh, of yeah, him you're right. by yet another name. <laughs> so it's just crazy.
1: But that's that's
0: thematically significant. Right? I know, but we're not going yeah. through right. <laughs> that. Okay. Okay. So so the problem is this. Valjean has made it out of the web that Javert set for him and into a place of safety and now wants to stay. He says to himself, now I have to stay here. This is, this is, my, this is my new place. But he can't do that because he's not allowed in and he hasn't entered by acceptable means. And so his instinct is to stay put. Faust however, with superior understanding of the cloister and the habits of the, of the nuns there, knows that he has to get him out again. So now he has to escape from safety back into danger so that he can make it into safety again. Tricky, tricky, Hugo. You tricky guy. I
2: liked the, the way that he phrased that problem to Jean Valjean. He acknowledges it and he says, it wouldn't be right to have you found here like this. Where have you come from? For me, you fell from heaven because I know you. But for the nuns, you have to come in at the door. Our conversation that we were just having about this interplay between the spiritual and the physical seems turned on its head right here. For Fauchelevent, who knows Father Madeleine and associates him with purity and perfection, he's kind of a, a virtue symbol in his mind, he takes it on faith. He doesn't need an explanation that's physical for how Father Madeline got there or why he should stay. But for the nuns, who are usually symbolic of that spiritual, not physical realm, they need a physical explanation for why he's going to be there, which I think is interesting. It's an interesting uh, transition.
1: That's also, it. also seems to be biblical imagery, right? You have to come through the narrow door mm-hmm. to get in. I was thinking of a scene from earlier where we were told that when the nuns entered the convent they are dressed in their wedding vest yes. and are forced to basically be crucified while everyone chants that they're dead. This seems to be a continuation on that theme.
2: The death and rebirth imagery begins right away because as this conversation is happening, a nun is dead or a nun is dying. And there's, mm-hmm. he says, the nun is, is dead. It's daybreak. She died at daybreak. Daybreak is always when people die. I thought that was an a beautiful underscoring of this idea too, that it's at the beginning of the day that life ends. So there's death when and rebirth. Yeah, you wake up again in a new life.
0: Yeah, it seems really clear that he wants to talk about death and life and and that, that those ideas are wedded to the spiritual and the physical, mm-hmm. two different realms. And how do we enter them, right? This is the question of the passage. How on earth are we supposed to enter into life, both spiritual and real? And it's 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 very Christian in the sense that it's a, a strange answer. <laughs> it's the world turned upside down. The only way to get in is to die for all of these nuns, right? I mean, he's taken pains to point out to us that they're living a living death, that they have removed themselves from life as it properly is described in every possible way. And I think he has yet to really tell us whether that was worthwhile, whether it will be worthwhile for Valjean and for Cosette. But I'm hopeful after this passage. I mean, I think there's there's going to be good things that come out of convent living for both of them. Megan, you, you, you nodded and then shook and then nodded again.
2: Well, I don't want to jump too soon to the end of the chapter, but I thought of another thing Mm -hmm. I can say without leading us astray here. We are allowed to be hopeful, even though there's all kinds of imagery about graves and death and crucifixion and people dying at daybreak and it's all very dark, but also Fauchelevent is a gardener. His the service that he does in the convent is to garden. And he also helps with grave digging. So He says, a gardener is something of a grave digger. I think the association goes both ways. On the one hand, this is a living death and to be in this convent is a prison and you have to die to get in here and it's all very horrible. And you know, they wear hairy underclothes for goodness sake. It's very uncomfortable in here. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, it's eternally associated with with dawn, with new things growing, little girls come and hang out in the convent. There's there's an equal part of youth and beauty and growth and new life to match the, the darkness. And I hope that with Cosette coming in, a character that we know who is youth and beauty and loveliness to Jean Valjean, that we'll get to see that part maybe bring new life into this convent as well. So I was hopeful because of the gardening image, that Cosette's going to be like a little seed planted in the, in this convent that brings hope. Not just for Jean Valjean, yeah. but maybe for the rest of the people in here.
1: It reminded me of the Bishop Muriel. We've had a couple gardeners in mm-hmm. our story thus far. And, of course, by the end, Jean Valjean is himself going to become a gardener, which was his original profession, a pruner. A
0: pruner. Yeah.
1: That's slightly different, though. A pruner... You think of the parable of (laughs) like getting the branches cast off, you're paring down, but a gardener cultivates more growth. But
2: they're both necessary because without the pruner, the tree won't bear fruit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I wonder if if the pruner represents that marriage of the spiritual and the physical. What a gardener is doing is essentially employing death to bring life. Puts a seed into the ground, seed dies, sprouts, and new life comes out of it. Right, from burial comes life, mm-hmm. but then the Bruner looks at the the budding tree and says, "We are going to cut pieces off of you, painful imagery, right? We're going to cut pieces off of you, we're going to employ suffering, not death, but suffering to bring forth fruit, and so maybe that's a step out of the convent into the church militant or something like that. I don't know we're we're getting far afield at this point, but so. The part that you were talking about being on the nose, Megan, is that clearly given I mean, and you could see it from the very first moment, I assume I certainly could clearly given the fact that this nun is dead and that the prioress and the rest of the nuns have decided to bury her inside their chapel beneath the altar, which is her dying wish and is illegal for health reasons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We don't want to we don't want a corpse <laughs> decaying below our feet. That, that's bad for you. But they don't care, right? Render unto Caesar and all that good stuff, unless you can bamboozle Caesar. Seems to be their their uh perspective. So, clearly, Valjean is going to make his way out of the convent by taking the place of this dead nun in her coffin, going out and being buried and then resurrected and then brought back in as Fauchelevent's brother.
1: I thought it was curious that Fauchelevent keeps calling it a farce throughout. Yeah. And there is, it's like a caper. It, mm-hmm. it, there is a sense in which reading this passage was like reading a spy novel. And, you know, it's French. French farce is a, mm-hmm. a true genre. <laughs> right. And so there, it's both weighty and, and ridiculous.
2: Talk- and ridiculous. Yeah. Up to and including the nun who's just died. Her name is Mother Crucifixion in case you were confused about
1: the imagery <laughs> here. Still missing
2: yep. it. <laughs> Mother Crucifixion has spent the last 20 years or so sleeping in a coffin, because that's what she chose to do. With permission from the Archbishop. Wow, well, right, because that'd be too dark otherwise, evidently. So she sleeps in her coffin. Like a vampire. Yeah, she's a vampire <laughs> nun. So that's we really don't need, we vampir- have an excess <laughs> coffin, which is very convenient, and it lends itself to the the farcical tone that you're talking about. We'll just and then he, the prioress even says, "Well, what do we do with an empty coffin? Like you got to put something in there." And fauchelevent's like, "Earth," and she goes, "Ah, yes, that'll work because a body really is just earth. That's great. It's so convenient that it's ridiculous."
0: <laughs> yeah, it's convenient that it's, it's it's convenient and ridiculous in the context of the plot. Certainly, I also think though that his line about it being a farce, he plays a little bit of the holy fool in saying that hmm. because on the one hand, this this community is committed to a kind of expiation, right? That uh, there's a beautiful parallel in Valjean's mind after he has successfully made it back in and is now a gardener in this convent. Beautiful parallel between the kind of prison that he was in before and this new prison of the convent and the kind of expiation happening, which is very personal and individual before in the prison that is now on behalf of all mankind when it comes to the convent and the cloister. So on the one hand, they're committed to sacrificing themselves that all mankind might be forgiven. On the other hand, their rules make it functionally impossible to help any people. You can't help anyone, right? Like how how many works of literature are there in the world where people wash up on the doorstep of a monastery, for example, or wash up on the doorstep of a church and they're in trouble and they have no money and there's no room at the inn And all they can do is come to the church and say, help me. And the church says, well, since I am the physical embodiment of the love of Jesus, of course I will help you. The rules at this particular cloister prevent that. Intentionally. Right. So a, a little bit when Levan says, what a farce. I think he's he is not angrily and not bitterly, but with sort of a rub in the back of his neck and shrugging saying... You know, it seems like this is what we're here to do. So I'm going to lie as often as I need to. I'm going to do whatever is necessary to bamboozle this establishment so that it can do what it is supposed to be doing.
1: Yeah, that puts him in relationship to the convent in the same. Like, that's a mirror image of the convent's relationship to the Paris authorities. Yeah, yeah, that's good. There's a section where the prioress says, you know, no one was like they didn't find out. This will not harm anything, right? right? The the, no one like as if to say, you know, rules that are in place when they're broken. If it doesn't hurt anybody that they're broken, well, were they really good rules to begin with? And
0: which is ironic. It's so ironic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Furslavol seems to be doing the same thing, right? Nobody knows who Jean Valjean really is. It doesn't really hurt anything that he's there, so everything is fine.
0: Yeah, I do think it's really funny that. What is necessary in order to save a good man and a helpless child is to lie to the people who are holy. That's ironic. That's dramatic irony, I think. Megan, your thoughts?
2: I'm just stuck on the, the description of Fauchelevent as ignorant, yet wise to things that the, the convent doesn't prize. So he knows everything, and yet he conceals it. The knowledge that he does have, and it's kind of artistic the way that he does that. So he's built a reputation for himself. The convent thinks he's stupid, and Hugo says, a great merit in religion. So I'm just thinking about this concept of- <laughs> Dang, Hugo. <laughs> well, it's brutal, yeah, but I'm thinking about it. Like I think he doesn't, ever, he doesn't ever drop a line like that without an intention, and he seems to be meditating right. on the nature of faith and taking things on faith and not requiring an explanation for some things and trusting that some things really do come from the hand of God and being satisfied with that. I think that we see that from the nuns. They, they aren't questioning Fauchelevent. I think <laughs> they're not stupid women. They just want him to stay out of sight and do what they need him to do, and then they're not going to think about him any more than that. And so he's got some leeway here to do what he right. Their needs eyes to are do. are
0: fixed on God, so they can't see what's happening in front of
2: them. Right, and that's kind of a mercy in our character's yeah. scenario. So I do think that there is a meditation on faith here in the background and the necessity mm. of, I don't know, trusting something beyond your own, your own explanations of things. There being some things that it's all right, that he's, he's not offering them the full truth. They don't need it. Mm. She says of this whole project that she's asking him to help her with, burying a nun illegally underneath their altar. It would be such a, a miracle, glory to God for our community miracles spring from tombs she is eager to see miracles come into the convent and what we know from you know an external perspective is that a miracle has come into the convent already already you know the god figure of our story has dropped at least from Fauchelevent's perspective has dropped another man into the convent who will be there to stay which is a miracle that's impossible he's already done the impossible and this nun is is whether she knows it or not eager to see a miracle spring into this community.
0: I like that. I like that reading a lot. It's a lot happier and a lot more it's a lot warmer than the than the other <laughs> dramatic irony reading.
1: This might be a stretch, but in the conversation that the prioress has with Fauchelevent about setting up this situation, she's she goes on that long meditation about <laughs> basically where she's trying to convince herself that this is an okay thing to do.
0: Because she's certainly not trying to convince Fauchelevent.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and she says that she's stuck between Benedict on the right and Bernard on the left, the two the two saints of her order. And she says that uh, Fontaine in Burgundy is blessed for having been the birthplace of Bernard. And of course that's Fontaine with an O, but Fontaine with an A is the birthplace, or, you know, metaphorically speaking, of Cosette, who is about to be placed within this convent. I just wondered if that is maybe Jean, or uh, Hugo playing with the words there and kind of saying the same thing that you both have been saying just now. Hmm. Oh, I like that. I missed that. Very interesting.
0: That's at the very least cool footnote material for a college paper. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, So, okay. so the whole thing goes off almost exactly as you expect it to. There's a reversal at the last minute where the gravedigger has died and been replaced by someone that can't easily be manipulated.
1: the farce of it, right? Like everything goes perfectly well. And he's like, it's going to be great. And like as you read, you're like, oh, no. Like this thing that they've been relying on as the easiest part is
0: obviously the part that's going to come Yeah, clearly it's the hardest part. <laughs> and so then the, the final meditation opens as Valjean almost literally passes from life to death and back to life again. He He faints because they actually bury the coffin and the air holes get closed over and suffocation happens even if you're a big, strong guy. So he faints and then is miraculously... Resurrected as, as, as open air <laughs> comes back into the convent.
1: Oh, and it says that resurrection is sometimes more frightening than death, mm-hmm. which I thought was an interesting comment.
0: Yeah. But he is saved at the last minute and ends up accepted into the convent, which then prompts a long meditation from Valjean himself in his own mind and heart over these two situations. We mentioned them earlier. His earlier prison sentence, which was a project of personal expiation, is the way that Hugo puts it, and the convent, which is also an imprisonment, but is not for personal expiations, rather for expiation of the sins of the world. What did you guys think of this meditation? Because I think this is the logical extension of what we were talking about earlier in the episode, tension between death and life, between spirituality and practical concerns,
2: well, this conversation about expiation seems to go hand in hand with the contemplation of justice and like paying your dues that Jean Valjean has been fleeing from and contemplating for the whole story. Hugo describes this convent as another seat of slavery or another prison. On page 568 of our book, he says, two seats of slavery, but in the former, so the society with a, with a legal system, rescue possible, a legal limit, always in view and also escape. So uh, interesting that he presents the, the societal version of imprisonment with more hope in it. The legal system itself is a chance for escape and, and refuge. In the second, so the, the convent, perpetuity, the only hope at the furthest reaches of the future, that gleam of liberty, which men call death. In the first, the captives were chained by chains alone, In the other chained by faith. So he seems to, by putting those two things side by side, say that though the legal system is not present, the nun actually says there's no justice or injustice in the convent. It's harsher, the existence in there is harsher and the imprisonment more eternal and only death can take you out of it. That seems backwards to me. At least in the description of, of the church that you gave, Ian, where people rush to the church for refuge from their earthly problems. This doesn't seem like a description of a place that I would want to go for refuge. It sounds like more of a prison than a prison.
1: And yet on 566 before, it says, God has his own ways. The convent contributed like Gazette to confirm and complete in Jean Valjean, the bishop's work. And at the end, it says the convent stopped him in his descent. And the descent or the fall is... Into pride and yes into pride but we've seen that imagery in the novel so many times the the fall of Fontaine, the fall of the drowning man right mm. the stopping of fall is just about the highest good i think that you can have in this novel although i mean it's a there's also the fall that leads to light right the shadow that leads to to the light but I don't know. I think that's, it's supposed to be a good thing that he, there's something nurturing about the convent in a way and, and the limitation in a way that the prison was, was not for
0: him. Yeah, I think you're right. But I wonder if we're not being led into some sort of a perpetual tension that he doesn't really intend to answer unless he's already answered it in the, in the form of, of the Bishop and the very opening of the story, because in the Bishop's case, we have a peculiar kind of asceticism. He's willfully given up all of his fortune, spends every dime that he has on the poor, and lives in a very spare way, right? And it's humility in its most, in its purest form. I think that's the goal of all of the rules of this cloister. But in the bishop's case, it's eternally wedded to the practical concerns of one's neighbor, rather than Solely the spiritual concerns of one's neighbor. I think that's, that seems to be the distinction that's, that's popping up for me. The nuns are concerned with everyone's spiritual, spiritual condition, and they see their own activity as affecting the spiritual condition. The bishop is concerned, of course, with everyone's hearts, but he's, his way of affecting those hearts is to take care of their bodies. (laughs) <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. To put clothes on them and get him medicine and feed them. And so maybe maybe his image hangs over the novel and allows us to see that we're seeing one extreme, an extreme focus on the spiritual in the cloister. And I don't know that there has been the opposite extreme yet. Maybe we'll get that later. An extreme focus on the practical and the physical and the worldly. And I wonder if Valjean is receiving the tools, having experienced the example of the bishop in the beginning, when he was at the very beginning of his faith journey, I wonder if he's receiving the tools now in the cloister to step out of it later and fill a middle role, a third road that combines those two spheres into something that looks more like faith put into action. What do you guys think of that idea?
2: Well, it does seem, I think that connection back to Monsieur bienvenu is important because he is very relational. It's not just physical versus spiritual. It's ideological versus relational. And Monsieur Bienvenu is, he's loving, he's personal, he's concerned with the things that concern you, you, his neighbor. I think that the convent is also concerned with other people, but it's the idea of other people, right? They are expiating, he says there it's expiation for others. But others is very general and broad. And for <laughs> right. Monsieur Bienvenue, he knows there are faces that jump to mind for those others that he's sacrificing his dinner for or sacrificing that that nice, nice decoration in his room for, or a nice chair, that kind of thing. It's all very, very personal. So that's something that I noticed that it maybe has to do with an idea of love and expiation. And then a personal expression of it. And I hope, like you do, that there's a bridge in this novel that maybe Jean Valjean is being tempered and
0: made into a bridge of those two two goods. Well, if there's going to be a bridge, there has to be truth in both of them, mm-hmm. right? And it seems clear that it, no matter how harsh he is in his assessment of the cloister, he's also not casting it down. Mm-hmm. He he is trying to outline something pure and beautiful at the heart of it. And I wonder if that pure, beautiful thing is not the humility that comes from death to self. Mm-hmm. And in Valjean, we have, because in exchange for his personal safety, physical safety, and for Cosette's life, he has to die. He has to become Ultimus <laughs> Fauchelevent <laughs> and stay in the convent and never leave. And he has to literally go through the grave in order to get in the front door of the convent and, and hide himself away forever. As far as he's concerned, that's a death to self that breeds real humility. We're told, Mm -hmm. right.
1: There's a, there's, I think a disturbing theme that keeps popping up that speaks to what you're saying, which is that every time someone does something ideologically motivated for good, that is actually like quite literally something that we are glad that they did. Like, in this case, Fauchelevent saving Jean Valjean as an act of generosity. And earlier on, let's see, what was the example I was thinking of? Oh, when Jean Valjean decides to present himself as prisoner 24601, place of the other man. In both cases, there are real-world consequences to their ideologically motivated decision. Mm. And like, and I'm not using the ideological in a negative sense. Right. There. I wasn't either. Like, I mean... Yeah. I mean, like, they are doing it for morally good reasons, as they should. Mm-hmm. And yet, in the case of Jean Valjean earlier, the whole entire town collapses because he's chosen to yeah, do the, the right thing. Yeah, the factory closes and and, suffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and in this case, Faucheleveau steals that gravedigger's card and goes back to his house to return it to him later. And we discover that the guy has basically wailed on his wife and children as he has tried to find it. And so this photo ball has caused suffering Mm. in a family because of a a real world consequence to a good that he was trying to achieve, which I guess what I'm trying to say is even our best decisions or our best actions have like, we have to be humble because there are negative consequences unintentionally sometimes.
2: Yeah. It reminds me too that he's, uh, he's still examining the life of, of faith and there being consequences for sin. These nuns are doing what they're doing in full confidence that they are making reparation for sins that are unconfessed and unrepentant out in the world. They're, they're trying to represent mankind before God and all of their, their expiation is for their neighbor and that idea there are real world consequences for the things going on out there that they are just thinking of in the ideal realm. Mm-hmm. And Jean yeah. Valjean, as he witnesses their, their reparations that they're trying to make in, I can't remember the, the name of the, of the act where they're laying in the, in the crucifix pose for 40 hours at a time, that kind of thing. He's moved, intensely moved and convicted of his heart attitude when he was a convict, when he was in, in a physical prison. I think that that maybe that ties into what you were saying, Emily, that these ideas of of faith, of repentance, of forgiveness, there's a whole spiritual conversation going on. And then there are pictorial representations of it in the physical realm. And maybe even that legal system that Jean Valjean has been interacting with up to this point in the novel is just that, a picture of something that is real going on in the spiritual realm. So Jean Valjean is going to be a great bridge where that conversation is concerned as well.
1: What? Do you guys think, is where is Hugo going with this conversation about names in the convent? Just like in the prison, these women surrender their real world names and take on a godly name, where and the prisoners get a number, which I think is a, a more inhuman version of the same thing. Yeah, Jean Valjean has once again died and been rebaptized into a new name.
0: Which, which they don't yeah. has
1: like three different names and he is remember his good deeds are remembered by the Pope by a false name,
0: by a false name. What I think, so this, this is a hot take and, and correct me if you guys don't think this is right, but I wonder if this is a little bit of the revolutionary spirit in Hugo, like comrade. Yeah. Oh, like the most important name that Valjean has been given throughout the entire novel. The one that changed his life is brother, which is an inclusive name that adds him to, the teeming mass of humanity, in a personalized way, rather than distinguishing him from them in a personalized hmm. way. I like that. And so I, it, and he seems to. I mean, it doesn't matter what name he's going by. Monsieur Madeleine is just fine. Valjean is okay. You know, he takes on a new name as often as he needs to, but the important name, the one that he holds to his heart, that has that has really affected him, is brother.
1: I really like that. I also. I wonder if it's attention too though, that there are good reasons to surrender your name,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but then at the end of the day, you're waiting for someone to call you by your name, you know, right. your real name. Right. And maybe you don't even know what that name is. Maybe John Valjean doesn't even know what that name is that he needs to be called by, but he has a unique name too. Yeah. And it, there's a tragic tragedy in the fact that he can't be known by, by it.
0: it. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure that's but true. It's, yeah, I think there's probably you're right. I mean, Hugo's drawing tensions all over the place, but it, come to think of it, he has two now. He has two names that are that help him to cope with the tragedy of losing his own and its brother and father. Yeah, he's now father also. Those names are m- more descriptive even of the man that he has become than his original name was.
1: Megan, you're going to say something.
2: I don't know if it directly pertains, but I'm just thinking about the renaming that happens in the convent versus the renaming that happens in a prison. In a prison, they're given a number, and it's dehumanizing. In the convent, they're given a name that associates with part of Christ's life. So we have Mother Crucifixion. Mm -hmm. We have Mother Ascension. (laughs) Mother Innocence. They're all associated with something about Christ taking their identity from him alone. And I don't think that is a dehumanizing renaming, as fascinating as that is. What we know about each of those nuns is totally fascinating. But in passing, I just was struck by Mother Ascension. The only fact we know about that woman has nothing to do with her personality or anything, but she is as strong as two men. Mother Ascension is as strong as two men. And I think that is purposeful. She's been renamed and with the renaming is grafted in the power of the ascension, the idea of of Christ rising up out of the grave and into heaven in his rightful place. There's nothing more beautiful and powerful than that moment of Christ's story. And I think that kind of renaming, that association with the power of Christ is beautiful and inspiring rather than Depressing. She's lost herself.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Oh, I I'm love trying the to imagine a nun that is as strong as two men. men. <laughs> I mean, she must be like a gigantic is that what it woman. Says? I thought it was just, just as strong as a man. German floral line of a nun. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm looking for it. I thought it was as strong as two men, but nope, as strong as a man. You're right. No, as strong as a man. Yeah, and then he says, two oh, men well. is is better than Mother Ascension." <laughs> Never mind.
0: Well, upside down and backwards.
2: She's, maybe she's not a frulein.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she's not a fro. Yeah, if it were Maria, yeah. we were dealing with her.
2: Well, she's as strong as a man.
0: <laughs>
2: anyway, the renaming is an interesting idea.
0: <laughs> well, I think we're about to get a time leap, which I can't say I'm not excited about. I'm interested to see some other characters join the fray. Our next section, our next book, our next, yeah, whatever we want to call it, volume, is entitled... Marius. So I think we're gonna jump into (laughs) we're gonna jump into Cosette's uh, adolescence. It seems like, (laughs) which uh, will be fun. But we have finished Cosette the book,
1: and we have also finished podcasting in 2022. And so we're going to wait to release our 2023 schedule after we've all had a good Christmas sleep.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we will be back with you guys at some point in January. Yep. in the new year with a new reading schedule and we hope you all have a wonderful Christmas it is a great joy to us to get to do this show and we're so glad that there are people out there listening <laughs> um, do jump on to Facebook and interact with us we would love to hear your thoughts about this wonderful novel and until next time my friends Bon Appetit, bon appetit. Bon
1: appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.